0: People will kill. They will steal. They will plunder. They will loot. They'll be the worst corrupt people, and they'll go to church every single Sunday and pray, and and they will put their hands on them and bless them because they know that they know that they derive power by being seen to be religious.
1: Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Global Health Unfiltered podcast. We're your hosts, Desmond Jumbam and Yao Bediako. A few weeks ago, the BBC published a deeply disturbing documentary about the horrible atrocities committed by TB Joshua, the late Nigerian televangelist. The documentary showcases the fake miracles, sexual exploitation, manipulation, abuse, and other violence that was committed by the televangelist. Over the years, thousands of people with various health conditions have flocked to him and his disciples for healing um, in Cameroon, in Nigeria, and other places. So today we are happy to invite Dr. Catherine Chobutingi back to the Global Health Unfiltered podcast to discuss the impact of prophets and so-called spiritual healers on the health of people across the continent and beyond. Catherine serves as the executive director of the African Population and Health Research Center in Nairobi and has decades of experience working in Africa to improve people's health across the continent. Welcome back to the show, Catherine.
0: Hi, Des. Hi, y'all. Thanks for having me.
1: So um, I, I imagine I know that you've watched the documentary uh, about TB Joshua by now, the three-part documentary, um, and I must admit that I have I hadn't watched it until about two days ago. Um, and I would love to get your reaction. What were your initial reactions to, 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 the, to what you saw in the documentary?
0: Um, are we allowed to cast on this podcast? <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're we're going to have to make this one <laughs> No, uh, honestly,
0: I, I watched it actually the day it came out. And um, I watched the first episode and I just couldn't wait to say that um, I'll watch the second and third episode, I don't know, whenever, because it was so disturbing. And um, I felt disgusted. I felt angry. I felt shocked. But I think for me, it it was, you know, if you put all the pieces together, it was how has something like religion, which is supposed to be a good thing been so bastardized and where people who are very smart people, I think, have decided that religion is their way of yeah, control and power and influence. And and at the end of at the end of the scale, there are these poor people who are being exploited and being abused. And for them they are doing it because religion is a good thing. But on the other side, you have this person or these people. It's, I mean, T.P. Joshua is not, it's not the only one. There are people who have decided that this is a way to get power, to get influence, to get wealth. And it's religion, which is, it shouldn't be that. It shouldn't be that. Religion is supposed to be something completely different. So for me, it was the ability of really what I would call bad faith actors to manipulate people who are doing something that they think is good but the people doing this have, have no good intentions and that they're able to get away with it because they've sort of embedded themselves in the political structures and power structures and they can literally get away with murder. But for me, I'm only seeing the other side, uh, seeing these people who come with faith and hope and whose sort of worldview is grounded into the good that region is supposed to bring to society and then being so callously exploited. By individuals for me that's what's very disturbing yeah but um yeah I was I was disgusted
2: yeah I think you know I think you raise an important point because I mean Africa is one of the most religious continents in the world people's (laughs) faith is incredibly important to them um and I think a discussion of this we have to also respect that that you know there there are many people of faith different kinds of faiths on this continent and faith is central Mm -hmm. to identity for a lot of people um and so in watching and seeing the discourse about this, I've always tried to hold you know, as a scientist, as somebody in the health sector, I think we have to be sensitive to how we approach it because we don't want to, you know, as Catherine said, you know, it's bad faith actors. They are these people who are taking advantage of people's religious beliefs. You could have another discussion about religion and health and the intersection and all of that. But I think this particular discussion is about somebody who was a charlatan, who was a false prophet. Um who who took advantage of people's you know religious seeking um, to enrich himself and 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 take advantage of people. Um, but you know, having said that, I think the response has been you know, I mean, it's it's not been uniformly negative. I mean, there have been people who have reacted quite neg- you know against the documentary producers and saying how you know this is besmirching a great man's name. So, I mean, I, I know, Catherine, if you have any response, why do you think? their response has not been sort of uniformly against tb joshua and instead he still has so many defenders um not necessarily even just within his own church but 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 externally
0: yeah i, I think maybe i think as you said the the response has been non uniform i think in the social circles in which i operate actually it was overwhelmingly um Against TB Joshua, the social circles in which I operate, which was a little bit surprising, knowing that the as you said, a lot of Africans are very deeply religious. But I think you could see narratives about, oh my God, I can't believe that this happened, and I didn't, I did, I I used to look at this man and I used to respect him, and I couldn't, I can't imagine this is what was happening in the background. And then of course, I think that people have already moved and they can see through, you know, all the the you know the. The bad faith, that is sort of accompanies these kinds of um, religious groupings. So I think there's that group that already sees through that. And they are already, they, they came out right and said, yeah, of course, we're surprised that this is what's happening. But then, as you said, there's another group, which from my experience actually was much smaller. And they had almost similar talking points. It was almost as if there was somebody supplying talking points. And the first talking point was, why wait until the guy died? And later, it turned out actually the investigation started much before before the guy died, and he died after the investigation had, had started. Then I think another narrative was like, no, 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 these people are liars. Like, why did they wait until all this time? Um, how can you st- how can you be sexually abused and you stay for ten years in you know in the same thing? And then is that even his daughter? That's not. So there were those things trying to sort of cast uh, doubt on the credibility of the people who were. Who were um, you know who who were interviewed by the BBC. So, but as, as I said, the thing overwhelming it was more like, oh my God, how could this guy do this, and how did he get away with it? But having said that, um, of course, I think in other circles, um, some narratives were like, it's not only TP Joshua. Then, like, oh no, wait, you know, my pastor or my bishop or my prophet is not is not like that. So, and I think for me that shows the hold that religion has on us as human beings. People, have, people of deep faith. Um, you know, this is something which can which can I would say approach people from something that is comfortable and something that is familiar and something in which they found community. So um, I think the fear of what would happen if I got out of this community is very big. And so people would rather deal with their doubts, uh, take their time. And maybe, maybe bury the doubts because, you know, for any difficult problem, there's there's denial and there's that fault. <laughs> I don't know how many stages people go through until people reach a point of like, okay, this is not right. It takes time. And so some people, I believe, are in those early stages of questioning, but I think you can expect that people are afraid. You can't just jump ship uh, into the unknown when you've had sort of comfort and community and um, you know, fulfillment in the community around that is uh, revolves around religion. So I think you can understand, you know, how people would do that. And then, of course, I think within that category of people who were against the the, the documentary, they are the same bad faith actors. This is their bread and butter. And if that whole system collapses, uh, you know, they lose power, they lose money, they lose the hold they have over people. And so I I don't I don't think you discount that those are also actually
1: yeah it's very understandable that um, religion is a your faith you know it's a very foundational thing and um anything that there's a question that um, it's almost you know it's, a, it's it's very adversary you know people um are less likely to to even consider anything that questions their faith especially when you um when you put it in in an individual like TB Joshua and, and the many other prophets. I was just uh, right before the podcast, I was watching um, a video by, uh, you know, about the prophet Passion Java. I don't know where they get these names, um, but there's a prophet Passion Java who just was arriving in Zimbabwe and the motorcade, the the arrive, his arrival in Zimbabwe is just like you imagine that it's David or somebody that is that is coming, um, and it's just amazing how people embrace and 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 believe in them and and questioning um, anything that would question that it would be really troubling to them. Um, but I'm curious, uh, Catherine. We don't s- seem to see as much of this type of faith healing on. You know, in the U.S., certainly it's it's, it's common to see televangelists, um, not as common as it used to be, but it's still common, um, but definitely not as common as in Africa. So why do you think this is so prevalent um, in across the continent?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think some people have argued that the reason why Africans are so religious and people of faith is because hardly anything else works so you don't have a job uh, you don't have you know uh, you know you, you can't you don't have school fees for your kids there you don't have money to get good care you go to a health facility and there are all sorts of things maybe there's nobody there or there's no or you don't get healed you know for something that you've gone to seek care for and so you find other ways of you know getting by so i think it's people have made that argument and um, actually there's some there are other arguments which say that when africans leave the continent and they go elsewhere, they become less religious because everything they used to pray for is there because of this, the way the system is set up. So I think there's that, uh, that um, uh, you know, people find ways of solving their problems and you can't rely on one way of solving a problem. You try different ways and then the problem is solved. And sometimes you don't know which way actually worked, but you know, you keep all of them because you don't want to uh, we are always afraid of the counterfactual. If I don't pray, what would happen? If I don't go to church, what would happen? You don't want to know that. Um, suppose hell is real, you know, so there's all that. We don't have counterfactuals about certain things. And so we we sort of, um, you know, continue doing that. So I think um, that's more like a an, an effect uh, and a contextual factor in the African context that there are not many good social services and therefore we find alternative ways of solving our problems but then i think uh, as as all of us would would know religion as i think it's you who know, said this this is something which is foundational we are socialized from a very 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 early age about the role of god and the role of religion in our lives and so it's not it's not unexpected that we see solutions in religion i think even though the systems are functional there will still be a place for religion in our day-to-day uh, problem resolution because the socialization is very strong. It starts from an early age. And um, since almost everyone has been socialized, you can't escape it. You go to school, um, you know, you, they want you to pray, they, you have to go to church on Sunday. If it's boarding school, there are certain things you have to do. Uh, you come out, you go to your workplace. Uh there are places where you cannot start the day without praying, you can't start a meeting without praying. So it is constantly reinforced in our lives to see God as a and religion as a solution to many things. And um and so it's not, I think, unexpected that people would find solace in the church mm. or in um the mosque when they are mm. confronted with even health challenges. Yeah.
1: Mm. I had a cousin who once told me um, he's he's here in the US. Um, he once told me that when he's back in Cameroon, he definitely believes in demons and and all of the all of the the voodoo and and the you know the crazy stuff that happens. But then when he's in the US, he doesn't believe that. Um, which. You know, it just boggles my mind. Like, and this is an educated man who believes different things in different places. Um, and so, it's it's just fascinating yeah. that that you know you mentioned the fact that um, oftentimes when people travel overseas, maybe it's the fact that the systems are more functioning that they become um, less reliant, reliant on their faith to provide certain necessities in life, like healthcare.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think it's interesting when you're talking about your cousin. Um, So I I, I stay in Kenya and I think in our extended family, I'm one of few people who are not in Uganda. And then when you, when I visit Uganda, you hear people's experiences, you hear people's um, something they live on a daily basis and it's their reality. And as I've said, I think we don't want to test you don't want to tempt fate by saying, I don't believe in this or I don't believe in that. And if that's your daily reality, you can't escape it. So sometimes I'm like, oh, maybe there's something there <laughs> because uh, but since I don't live that reality, I can I can step in and step out. But there are people who are there constantly. So for instance, if people believe in witchcraft and and their daily experiences sort of revolve around that. It's hard to it's hard to say that's nonsense because I'm not them I'm not there, and it's their reality. And since I don't live their reality, I can't discount it. I can't minimize it. And so much as I may not have that belief that you know that you know things can happen, I don't know. Maybe they can. And I, as I said, when people are afraid for, about the counterfactual, because you can discount it, suppose it's true. You don't want to test that. Because testing testing the counterfactual could mean that you die, and then there's no <laughs> there's nobody to tell your story that actually it was true. So that fear of uh, suppose this was actually correct, suppose this was actually true, I think is quite strong. And therefore, I leave people to their um, faith, and they have my own faith, and yeah, and we 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 go on. Life goes on.
1: Yeah,
2: I, I think that's a really interesting point. I think, and perhaps that's where science and health in Africa is failing in that we don't interact. We don't, in, you know, science, many of us scientists are trained in Europe, North America. We have sometimes secular views when it comes to science. Um, mm-hmm. We may be people of faith ourselves, but we don't, we don't mix the two. It's like when you're in your science, you're in your science and it's rational and, and logical, and then you may have faith and you, you do handle that differently. But because we are trained in Europe and North America, and we typically professionally interact in that space, we don't have to confront religion in a professional sense because typically in our day to day, in our circles, wherever we work, it doesn't creep in. But perhaps in for African scientists and health practitioners, we need to engage more um, with it because the people we seek to serve, you know, are very, in, you know, their lives are intertwined with their religious beliefs. Um and 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 so the majority of people would not have the same worldview that we might have or the same dualism that we are able to establish. For them, everything is integrated. Mm. Um and maybe that is where we allow people like the T B Joshuas to begin to take advantage. So I mean, I'd be interested to, to get your take, Catherine, in terms of what can African scientists or African health practitioners, people operating in healthcare in Africa, mm. what can we do better to counteract you know some of these things that these false prophets do because the church historically has also been a source of great good for healthcare many hospitals in africa were started mm-hmm. by missionaries right we cannot discount the fact that catholic priests and nuns and church workers throughout you know our colonial past especially provided healthcare and many of the hospitals are still named after some of these people who you know i think were very well meaning people who did a lot of good things so Religion has had some good effects on people's health historically, but now we have this proliferation of so-called healers and prophets and people who may have ulterior motives. Um, So how does the African scientist, how does the African doctor engage with the African population um, to help them, you know, and perhaps even engage with religious bodies? Uh, But I was just curious what you think, we are not doing that we should be doing better to begin to counteract the tb Joshua's of this world
0: yeah i think that's it that's a difficult one because when i ask myself who is the african scientist who is the african healthcare worker who is the african doctor because there's a healthcare worker who is somewhere in the middle of nowhere running a health facility who has to see 50 patients every single day and then perhaps go to the fields to vaccinate babies and do all that stuff so there's a systemic problem that um doctors simply don't have time or nurses don't have time to engage the same way that T B Joshua would engage with somebody who has come to them for help. And um and I think that's I think that's one way of looking at it. The other the other thing is that the 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 people in in churches or the pastors or the bishops are very consistent in the way they interact and they engage with their clients, if I call it if I could call it that. They don't put on a hat and put it off. It's the same hat of they have a consistent message. They have a consistent way of um, communicating. And they communicate about something for a long time until it becomes sort of, um, you know, embedded in people's thinking and psyche. Doctors don't do that. They'll call you to talk about vaccination on on TV and then you speak and go back home and you'll never talk about vaccination again. They ask you to talk about cancer because it's World Cancer Day. You go and speak about cancer, and then you go back home. Because in your day-to-day life, the way you interact with society, you don't have the consistency and the time and the commitment to engage, you know, about cancer, as you understand it. So if you go on TV and speak and go home, how many people watch that TV show? Sure, maybe 50,000 in the country. But... The people who interact with the TB doctors of this world, they are consistently bombarded with the same message about certain things. So if there are five messages, by the time somebody interacts within a year, they, they get it. But for us, it's hit and run, it's hit and run. And I, don't, I wouldn't blame the doctors. I don't think the system is set up in a way that doctors have the time to do that. But on the other hand, the way doctors are trained, the way healthcare workers are trained, uh, we are trained in a certain way, we see things you know, in black and white, it's yes or no, it's you have diabetes or so you don't have a diabetes. and 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 I think somehow that training, which is, you know, Eurocentric, takes away the other elements of disease and health and spiritual well-being and well-being generally. And so by the time you finish, you discount them. And yet, the patients that we see, the way that we interact with, that are, are in, in that world, that is part of their world. So, our ability to incorporate that in care and to acknowledge that there's a role for them, and not see it as either or. It's either religion that heals, or it is medicine that heals. Not looking at it as an either or thing. And so, we are not trained. We are not oriented in that way. And even outside the issue of religion. I mean, there's something else about traditional healers and all that. Doctors are not trained to engage in a way that is respectful with other, for no, other ways of knowing, other ways of thinking. They're not trained in that way. Uh, you have cancer, that's it. And this is what is going to happen. If somebody entertains the notion that, oh, I think I'm going to go to my pastor, then you, you're very stupid. Well, why do you think that? Rather than yes, I understand, and you know, we can all work together on this. So there's a, there's a problem in our training, there's a problem in our orientation, there's a problem of time, there are time constraints, and then there's a problem of lack of consistent messaging. And as I've said, it's, it just, it's not just about religion, it's about everything else. A, a mother comes to a healthcare facility, they have five problems with their baby, and the doctor picks on one, go to the lab, get an injection, take this medicine, go back home. And yet the mother had hundreds of questions that perhaps were relevant to their child. And that's a missed opportunity. If that child doesn't get better, the cha- the mother will go to another healthcare provider. If they go and they get the same kind of treatment and the child doesn't get better, they'll go to a place where someone is going to sit with them for an hour and listen to them and visit them at home and then check on them. And then when they come, they respect them, they listen again. So they will gravitate towards that kind of setup. And that's why um, even outside the dichotomy between faith and Western medicine, even within Western medicine. that's why there are quarks who thrive. Somebody has never doesn't have medical training. they set up a facility somewhere in the village and they are very popular because they are respectful, they take time, they follow up on patients, they call them, they explain and, and they take away people from now the non quark establishments. Because the non quark establishments, people are harassed, they are busy, they are stressed, they are not well paid. So there there's a lot that's that's wrong in the healthcare system. And so it will take really a lot to shift the orientation and then mm. see all these forms of knowing and knowledge as things which are complementary rather than, mm. you know, um, you know, other other than contradictory or something like that. Yeah.
1: Mm. I can't help but uh, I think that uh, the weight should not only fall on the shoulders of healthcare workers and, and scientists, and I agree with you on that. Um, and I, it seems to me that theologians and um, those who deal in this space of, of the mystical and um, have a much larger role to play. And you know, I think back at my own kind of evolution in my thinking on on, on faith you know <clears throat> excuse me here in the u.s um you know i went to a very conservative uh, christian school um i came in with a very strong faith um and i remember studying biology um you know where evolution was being thought um, within this conservative Christian university, right, the, the Bible department and the and the biology department were very much at odds with each other. Um, and I remember my biology uh professors really just kind of sitting down with us in the courses and kind of taking us, trying to get us to understand how we can reconcile um our mm-hmm. faith with the science that we're learning. The foundational science that we're learning in in our courses, um, mm-hmm. and that really helped me to to dive a bit deeper to to understand that these things they don't necessarily need to be at odds with each other. Why do they seem at odds with each other? So that was very helpful. Just having, I mean, in in that case, those were those were uh, professors um, that helped me, but there were also, you know, I actually had a mentor who was a Bible professor that i would have lunch with almost almost on a daily basis and and he would on a weekly basis and so i would meet with him and discuss and say oh you know we're talking about this concept in biology what do you think of that right and that dialogue between the science part with my science professors and the bible professors really helped me to to you know kind of make sense of it so i wonder if our educational systems have such a big role to play as well in just getting people to understand um, you know the basics of the science and how you reconcile it with with uh, this foundational um, faith that people have
0: yeah I would say I would say most definitely and I think in two ways I think one way is what you've described that uh, is there a place for a department within the same Educational institute to as I said, to help people reconcile those things that seem at odds with each other. I think that is that is something which could be, uh, which is possible. I think what we have currently is that if there's a a department of theology, um, which is quite unusual you can't find like a department of theology at Makere University, University of Nairobi. The schools of theology are separate completely. Mm, and if mm. there's any department of religion, it is that they run the church services on Sunday and maybe they go and pray for patients and they have some kind of outreach ministry. But the interaction with people who are learning doesn't happen. Uh, mm. Or maybe they come in at when they talk about ethics or something like that. So they, there's no systematic um, attempt as you said to reconcile those two disciplines or ways of thinking that's 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 one way in which uh, the education system could help. But for me fundamentally, I think the education system should be one that enables people to do the reconciliations themselves. that you're trained in a way that you can get one piece of information, get another piece of information, and you you're sort of you have the capability and capacity to interrogate those two different sets of information. You're able to read on your own, find more information, and over time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. form your own worldview. Mm-hmm. But I think our education system does not necessarily allow that. Because um, you know, you've you've, you've probably trained in, you know, in, in these countries. It's about get facts, speed them out on a piece of paper, on a computer, pass an exam, and mm-hmm. like go through this narrow path of um absorbing lots and lots of information and then regurgitate that information to prove how much you absorbed during the teaching and during the learning process. And it's not a system that allows people to question. It's not a system that allows people to interrogate and it doesn't allow people to find alternative uh, sources of information. The teacher, the lecturer is an authority and we are socialized and trained to see them that way. And and so when you come out of school, then you go to church, and then there's the pastor, and there's that, and so we are we are trained in ways that are very regimental, and doesn't allow us to question these things and maybe try to reconcile them ourselves. And and I think that's fundamental. Maybe that's that would be, be that would be better because it can be much more widespread uh, if if our education system is turned on its head, that it it produces people who can really think for themselves, and then come to their own conclusion about what, is, what it is about them and what, what do they believe. There's no right or wrong belief, it's, but at least you should be comfortable with that and not being boxed and fearing to even look outside. Because if you look outside, then you might be seen to be a certain way. So I think that's where the education system could help, um, really training people who can reconcile different pieces of information and come up with, yeah, their own view of the world.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think this, I think this topic is quite personal for me because both my parents are theologians um, and my younger brother and I are both scientists. So in our house, you know, you had two children who grew up in a house where theology was spoken all the time. Um, in fact, my father was a very prominent African theologian, very well known for, you know, for how he viewed, um, you know, Christianity in Africa. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what my parents did was they created an environment that you produce two PhD level scientists Um, who are doing very well in science because they embrace discussion. It wasn't that science or theology. It was Mm -hmm. theology is a worldview and a way you think about the world and science is another and you can actually interact. And I think Desmond, what you described Mm -hmm. is sort of a liberal arts, um, US liberal arts type education, which is also what I had in college. Um, I also went to a very conservative Christian college, but there actually, they taught evolution, not in conflict with what the religion professor said. You were actually engaging with it And I think that, and I think what Catherine is talking about, that system actually is allowing you to confront, you know, appearance of conflict which may not be conflict. And I think that is what Mm -hmm. a good education does, whether it's religion and science or other things. We always confront things that appear initially to be in conflict, but with with dialogue, with you know introspection, you you can find lines where there is intersection and where there is room for. For 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 dialogue and, and, and for understanding, um, and I think I think I think it was when we did the podcast with Professor Iruka Okeke, where she talked about how Africa's you know colonial our colonial education system produced people who can function in the colonies, right? So they wanted people who could be clerks and registrars. It was not producing innovators or thinkers, right? If you think too much, you want independence. So they create robots. Um, and we've not changed. So our education system is regimented. You are a science student. I mean, we get to specialize way too early. You have either a science student or an art student out of like halfway through high school. Um, mm-hmm. That you know is is terrible. You should have artists who become scientists and scientists who become artists. <laughs> um, so I think I, I think I fully engage mm-hmm. with that. And I think this T B Joshua example perhaps is is almost a it's a it's an effect of a system that has produced people who may be very intelligent, but are not able to interact with different spheres and different worldviews, and so are vulnerable mm-hmm. to manipulation by people who are, you know, smooth-tongued and, and are able to, to twist, you know, people's beliefs. Um, so I guess that the question then is, you know, how do we, you know, what, how do we move forward? I mean, we, we do need more interaction. Um, I agree doctors don't have time to, to engage and I think the term we use spiritual healers you know does our medical profession are they healers or are they treated treaters right they treat your your disease but they don't heal you whereas the pastor is seeking to heal you and is addressing many other things maybe the baby's hungry because mom doesn't have money to pay food it's not just that the baby has malaria and is the doctor going to recognize that the pastor probably will because the pastor will talk mm-hmm. to you um and so I guess the question is how do we move forward we know what the problem is how how do we begin to address this so that our populations are less vulnerable um, to manipulation? But perhaps how do we engage with well-meaning religious leaders? I think we shouldn't paint all religious leaders and theologians as negative. Obviously, I may be slightly biased, given my my, my disclosed background. But um, how do we engage? You know, the, During COVID, I think it was the Church of Pentecost in Ghana was instrumental in getting people to get vaccinated. Because the head of the church came out and said, "I got vaccinated, and you guys would be silly not to." Yes, we pray for God to protect us, but go and get vaccinated as well. How do we engage with these people to to use their influence actually for good, um, and then define distinguish them from those who are clearly just in it for their own ends?
0: Yeah, I think I guess the question would be whether this is this should just be about health, or whether it's about whether it's in general, and I go back to the consistency of messaging. What do we want, as maybe medical practitioners? What do we want? What do we want as health practitioners? Because it shouldn't be like let's just address this thing and then move on. I think it goes back to that consistency of messaging. And I'll just give some examples about how you know the established Western medical, the 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 Western medical establishment gets beaten at 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 something they should be good at. By as you said, faith healers, but also uh quarks and you know others. Um, you know, in where I come from, there are people who are born setters. I don't know whether that happens in your own in your own culture. There are people who are known as bone setters. And it's like a lineage thing. It's something you inherit from your, you know, your fathers and, and, and all that. So it lines, it runs through families. And not anybody can wake up and say we are a bone setter. So, for instance, where I grew up, we know a family which was a family of bone setters. And even up to today, everybody knows that that is the family of bone setters. Now, when you go into, into a hospital and somebody comes with a fracture, you know, in medical school, they teach you that different fractures, depending on the size of the bone and the location, they, 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 have, they take different time frames to heal. So, you know, the smaller bones take faster, the bigger bones take longer. And so, the, the, I think the the big examples are for the the big bone in the in the thigh, the femur. That fracture we were told required, you know, those many years ago, required twelve weeks of immobilization. So they would take somebody to theatre, they pull the bones which have sort of um, you know separated, they put them together, and then they fix them with screws. Now they now they don't do all that, and then when they fix them. To make sure that the fracture doesn't move again, they would put people into some kind of thing that held them immobile, and it was supposed to take twelve weeks. And after twelve weeks, they do another X-ray, and the bone would—if the bone had sort of come together again—then they would remove that whole apparatus, and the person would get a cast. And then about one month later, they would almost almost be good to go. So it used to take it would take about four months, on average, for somebody to sort of be back on their feet or at least using clutches when the fracture has healed. Now, when people would come and get admitted with this whole elaborate apparatus, it was very painful. And of course, as people, people had to stay in bed, they couldn't get up. The screws were painful and all that. People would tell them, no, if you stay long enough, you know, the, the leg will be amputated." So it wasn't uncommon for people to cut those <laughs> elaborate apparat- apparatuses in the middle of the night and they take these patients to bone setter. You meet those people one year later, they're still there, patient. But they were not patient to spend 12 weeks in a hospital. 12 weeks was too long. If the person had been there for eight weeks, they told them they would just run away. And then they would go and spend a whole year patiently and without complaining. And then, of course, all sorts of things would happen. Some would get infection. Sometimes the, 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 the leg would heal but bent and the person can never you know walk properly again. But they were okay with it because they had been convinced that the alternative was to have an amputation. Even though that was not true, it was almost unheard of for someone to be amputated because they got a fracture of the femur. Almost unheard of. But people believed that strongly and they believed the bone setters. And they were patient with the bone setters, but they they were never patient with the the Western medical establishment. So what is the problem there? I know people that you would meet one year later and they are walking with a limb because the leg had healed in a way that was bent. Even for small, the smaller the smaller legs, I mean the smaller bones. And so you'd ask yourself, what are, we, what are we not doing right? That people can go and wait for a year and they couldn't wait for six weeks for the same fracture. So is it because we've raised expectations so high that people expect miracles? It's the same with cancer. People will come. And then they'll be told, You have cancer, you need to do X, Y, Z. And they'll say, No. Then they'll go somewhere else. And then they'll come now with stage four, like terminal cancer, two years later. Because you couldn't keep them at that time. They went somewhere else and t- they were patient for two years and now they're coming. But they couldn't wait for three months or six months that we were supposed to spend in the in the Western uh, establishment. So I don't know that we've raised expectations to an, to an extent. People think that Western medicine um, is one that performs miracles. And so when miracles don't happen, then people seek alternatives where perhaps the way the alternatives have been framed and pitched, they are not promising the same level of miracle miracle that is promised in the Western medicine. So I think there's that, like we are, we are really getting it wrong when it comes to communicating about care, about uh, prognosis, about progression of disease, about all this. And so other people have come in to fill that vacuum. And they fill the vacuum in a way that is not usually helpful. There are some things where you know that as night follows day, I mean, if you've been diagnosed with cancer stage two and you don't get the right care, as night follows day, two years later, you'll be back with stage four, maybe even earlier. But there's no way of even tracking, like those people who went to bone setters, we don't even have data to say what happened to them, how long did they stay, what was the outcome, we don't know that. People just run away, and they run away, and they get lost to the system. So I think we are missing uh, an opportunity to, first of all, document some of those things, but then also manage expectations and being more intentional on how we explain that the, that Western medicine does not promise miraculous cures. That there are there are prognostic factors. That there are other things. There are different outcomes. You can be healed. You may not be healed. And and I think we have to do that. What 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 alternative we have? You know that's the thing. Like, what do we want as healthcare providers? What do we want as doctors? Do we want to just be there as demigods that dictate and hold all the cards in our hands, or do we want a healthy population? And if Mm. you want a healthy population, then we can't run away from, you know, doing what the population expects of Mm. us or what the population gets, you know, from other, you know, (laughs) from other providers of health. So we can't run away from that. And we, we can complain about how busy the system is, how overwhelmed doctors are, but sometimes we are overwhelmed because we didn't take time at some point in time in the past. You know, a woman comes when they're pregnant, we don't take time to explain vaccination and nutrition and, all, and family planning. And then they come when they're pregnant again, you know, when their other baby is one year old, and we deal with that pregnancy. And so we don't realize that the fact that we don't spend time at a certain time in the past is actually what's driving the fact that we are overwhelmed in the future and in the present. So at, as I said, we have to ask what we want. If we have a healthy population, then we don't have too many options. We can't keep on doing the same things over and over again and expect different outcomes. So our orientation as healthcare providers, our orientation as you know scientists has to change. Mm. And um, yeah, of course, this is putting the burden on us as individuals. Then of course, you have to ask yourself, what can governments do? The people who design curricula, what can they do? Um, that's a different story altogether, uh, because uh, sometimes it's difficult to operate in a dysfunctional system. So, mm. But I think all of us have a responsibility to do the best that we can. Mm.
1: Well, I have some experience with with, um, with bone setters. I've not been to a bone setter, but I, you know, I had a car accident a few years back and um, broke my femur you know I was advised to go to a bone setter you know my uncle told me that these guys are very reliable they're good you know and I being someone who works in global surgery you know believe quite the contrary and so um, I found the best orthopedic surgeon and I could find a Day to operate me (laughs) and yet I still got um, an infection and you know, got osteomyelitis and had to get two additional surgeries after that. Um and so I'm guessing in his head he was probably thinking, Well, I told you. Um
0: <laughs> I told you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I told you so. Um but we don't know we like you say, uh we don't know what, what the, the 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 alternatives are the stats for the bone setters and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there, are, there are some governments where they're actually working with bone setters to educate them to train them because you know they they do provide um, you know kind of healing that people that have come to them and and they've mm. you know it, it's really basic, right? It's just aligning the bone and, and keeping it in one place. But you know uh, there there are a lot of other um, you know, like you say, they, they end up staying there for one year, the bone gets healed in the wrong way and all of that. So, uh, But Catherine, I'm, I'm curious. My, my other question is I want to talk a little bit about accountability. Mm-hmm. There are people that have been hurt by TB Joshua. Um, there are lives that have been lost and continue to be lost by his disciples in um cameroon, in the UK, in Greece, right? There was there was an article by Open Democracy that that talked about how his disciples continue to do this around the world. Um, people have lost lives. Uh, people have lost their loved ones. And so and I I I can't we're we're talking a lot about education and changing the mindsets of people. Um, mm. And that's a very long-term strategy. But I'm curious, how do we hold people who continue to exploit, I would say, the vulnerable in our societies? How? Who holds them accountable? How do we hold them accountable? Because yeah, it, I mean, it needs to happen. Was, yeah,
0: <laughs> It does. And I think for me, that was the the most maybe infuriating thing about all this. What has happened since this documentary came out? What has happened? Is there any legal process that is happening in Nigeria by the government? I don't think so. And because these bad faith people know exactly what they're doing. And there were all these clips of this guy meeting of presidents. I don't know presidents of how many countries. And uh, there were clips of the previous president coming to condole with him after the, the tragedy. Just imagine that. A hundred hundreds of people have died. And your first thing that you do is we've come to offer our condolences to the, to the, to the prophet, no, not to the families of people who died, No, to the prophet. <laughs> That's what the president of Nigeria came to do. So that, what is infuriating is, unfortunately, I don't think there will be accountability. I don't think so. Because if there was to be accountability, maybe by now there would be a process. It didn't, it didn't need the BBC to dig up all these things for accountability to take place. And so I think for me, what maybe one of the good things that this documentary did is to open people's eyes that these people can get away with something and it will be you, it will be your relative, it will be your friend, it will be your neighbor that will, that will have suffered the consequences. There's something happening in Kenya. I don't know if you've heard of the Shokahola, Shok, Shoko, yeah, Shokahola incident, where almost, I think now there are probably around 400 people who have been an, an, you know, unearthed from graves around a, a similar facility. And um, actually, based on witness accounts and all this, these people were asked to fast, and some of them starved to death. But now it's turning out that there were other many other deaths which had nothing to do with that whole fast until you die, kind of um, you know, brainwashing. And what happened? It made headlines. It became like this whole thing. And then the government said, no, we are not going to allow media anymore. You can't report about this anymore. And so now whatever is happening is being done away from the media. And we've all moved on. So what, uh, what do you expect? Of course, the, the, the person, the, the pastor, bishop, or whatever is in, is in prison. But what are the chances that this person will be convicted? And how do you convict somebody for the death of 400 people? That is that enough, that one person is convicted? Who else was involved? Where was the local government? Where was the police? Where was, where, where's, where's all that? So that is what is infuriating, that accountability is difficult. Until, you know, people start seeing through this whole charade and this whole performance and this whole bad faith. That we are seeing from our, you know, from, from some of these bad faith actors. Um, and to and, and actually the other aspect of this is how now bad faith actors from the political side are taking advantage of religion, and that's why accountability is hard. The worst leaders, the worst political leaders are religious. Or they they, okay, <laughs> let me say, quote, they are religious, quote unquote. People will kill, they will steal, they will plunder, they will loot. They'll be the worst corrupt people, and they'll go to church every single Sunday and pray. And they, and they will put their hands on them and bless them. Because they know that. They know that they derive power by being seen to be religious. And they, and now it's, it's scratch your back, scratch your back. The, the religious people know it, so they're in a symbiotic relationship with political with political leaders. And at the end of that is the poor African who is suffering, you know, horrible service, corruption, hunger, poverty, unemployment. So there's like, there's like collusion between politics and religion. And it's so blatant. It's so blatant to see. And sometimes it's hard to see why people don't see that. You know, somebody like uh, will even kill people, but they will be, you know, in cahoot with a pastor. And then everything we forget everything, and we are, we believe that this guy is actually this person is actually religious. Like how how how, how can we be so gullible about it? So I, I, unfortunately, it's hard to see how how can kind of the is going to happen until that point when I think I I have I have a lot of faith in human beings that over time we learn we grow, and there will be some kind of tipping point where hopefully we shift to the other side where people don't get away with these kind of things that they do. But that is something which is very far in the future. And um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, I think for me, that's the sad fact.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think when you think about accountability, I mean, look at human history. I mean, look what's happening in the Middle East right now. Look what's happening in Gaza. Where's the accountability for that? Um, I think, I think, yeah, we look at, it seems to happen a lot in Africa where people get away literally with murder. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, I, I believe the Akamapans will come. Um, and I, I think I believe in, you know, Catherine, you know, that people, eventually people rise up and resist oppression of, of whatever form. But I do think going back to what can be done now, certainly from our perspective as people in global health and in healthcare, I think the one thing that perhaps we need to learn is a respect for our patients or the people we work with. I think listening to what think was talking about, what we've been discussing this morning, you know, where we fall down as quote-unquote scientists is unfortunately maybe sometimes we buy into the colonial, uh, it's not necessarily always just colonial, but we, we fall into that thing of these are poor people who don't know as much as we do, and we treat mm-hmm. them as such. You know, I mean, I think we each have to examine ourselves, you know, when we interact with whether it's research participants or patients or whoever in the study and the work we do, do we see them, do we see ourselves in them or do we pity them, right? And I think where people, whether they are genuine religious leaders or fake charlatans like TB Joshua or bone setters or traditional healers, those people don't other the people they work with, they get in the trenches, they make mm-hmm. you feel heard, they make them feel respected, they make them feel cared for. Whether it's genuine or not, the person leaves feeling that, wow, this person cared about me. And I Gross. think that is probably what is lacking in our Western educated, you know, elite almost elitist behavior. In that, yeah, we want to help Africa, but do we see ourselves there? Or is it these people who don't know anything and we are telling them we are the source of all truth And we know that it's malaria caused by a parasite and they are silly for thinking that it's some grandmother in the village who is doing me something. Right. And I think that condescension is, is felt by these people. And so they won't be patient. They won't give you three weeks. They'll they'll go. And actually there's evidence demonstrating that people will go first to the hospital. And then they go to the healer. They don't go to the healer first. They go to the hospital first Mm -hmm. because that's what they feel they should do. But based on their experience, they go elsewhere. I have an aunt who delivered four of her children at home because she had terrible experiences the first couple of times she went to the hospital. So she Mm -hmm. chose to deliver on her own successfully. I mean, my aunt is a force of nature, but she would (laughs) not go to the hospital. And so instead did unassisted delivery at home rather than go to hospital because she was so mistreated at the hospital. So, I think yeah. maybe, yes, accountability is important, and these people need to get you know justice needs to be be sought, but maybe in our small level, at our level, we can take that responsibility to view ourselves in the people that we seek to serve and to place ourselves there better than we do and and show that respect and love and and maybe then our message will begin to permeate, and people will be less vulnerable to the people who are seeking seeking them harm, but are dressed up, mm-hmm. you know, wolves in sheep's clothing, as it were. So just, you know, sort of yeah. thoughts about about that. Yeah.
0: And, I, and I think capture that also applies to us as, as scientists. Um, the way we treat our study subjects and the study participants and study communities. And um, at, at the African Population at Research Centre, we work with policymakers and we work with civil society. That many times our engagements are from a position of power and superiority. We are the scientists. We have PhDs. We understand these issues, and we're here to help you. And we know what your problems are. We know what the solutions are. So we're here to facilitate and help. And and it's it's so pervasive. And of course it goes back to the whole the the way we are trained, and that that is still going going back to the colonial way of seeing of looking at the world. So we still have a long way to go, where you. You're you're doing an engagement, and you're there as somebody who maybe is an equal, or maybe even less. You don't understand people's problems the way they do, and so listen, pay attention, and don't come like this PhD holder with 200 papers on their CV, and therefore know it all about that. So even I think from research, science, policy perspective, we still have a long way to go, and maybe that's why we have so many problems, and what we think are good solutions are not working. Because you are not mm-hmm. listening to the to the people that we we think we are serving, we think we are helping.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's a very sobering note to end our discussion on. Um, yeah, the, we've got a long way to go. There's a there's a certain level of humility that we should approach um, it as scientists and healthcare workers. Um, but I can't also help thinking that having conversations like this um, and documentaries like the one that BBC released um, will help to create a space where discussions can be had because I believe that one of the best ways to stamp out bad ideas is is to flesh them out and, and discuss them in the public spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I hope that you know at least this discussion gets gets people thinking and gets people talking um and hopefully that in the long term will will help us to um you, you know really deal with this uh, pervasive problem um across the world but really catherine thank you so much for coming on the show we've enjoyed having you again and i and i believe we'll be having you back again shortly. thank you so much Thank you,
0: uh, this and thank you, y'all, Yo, for having me. I look forward to continuing the conversation.
1: Thank you.